0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? I'm Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy. I want to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, on. my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 11th. Today, what happens when police respond to mental health calls and grieving virtually in a pandemic? Just a warning before you listen: this story contains some explicit descriptions and tape of violence.
1: Stacy Kinney is somebody who lived in Springfield, Oregon. Highly intelligent person, held two degrees, was able to purchase property with the money she made off the stock market. Very close with her family, and in. The last year of her life, she decided to change her name and her gender because as she told her family, she felt like she would be safer if the outside world believed that she was a woman. I'm Kimberly Kindy, and I'm an investigative reporter on the national desk for the Washington Post. Earlier this year, Kimberly spent
0: some time with Barbara and Chris Kenny, Stacy's parents. They told her all about Stacy's interests growing up and about how they bonded as a family. And just to note, Stacy legally changed her gender, but according to her family, she preferred male pronouns with them. So you'll hear Stacy's parents refer to her as Patrick throughout most of the story and use he-him pronouns.
2: He was at a very early age, interested in math. He did a lot of mathematics stuff. He just liked uh, different kinds of puzzles. He liked doing mazes. He liked doing um, number crossword puzzles where the the diagonals and the horizontals and the verticals had to add up to the you know a certain number that like a sudoku kind of thing.
3: he was very concerned about global warming and uh, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So he got uh, some carbon dioxide monitors and would monitor
2: that.
1: She was diagnosed in high school with paranoid schizophrenia.
2: So schizophrenia causes... um Severe anxiety. You know, I think all of us worry about things to one level or another. And there's generalized anxiety disorder. You know, there's anxiety disorders, but schizophrenia takes it to a, another level. Uh, to the and the clinical term is paranoia. So you become very afraid of ordinary things that wouldn't make uh, a healthy person um, scared.
1: So what happened to Stacy last year? Last year, Stacy was driving down the road near her home. She saw a police car behind her. Um, She was afraid of police. And so she pulled to the side of the road. She was not directed to. She just pulled to the side of the road. The officer, since he did not direct her to pull over, found this odd. And in his deposition, said that he pulled behind her to check because the behavior did seem odd. He got out of the car walked up to the passenger side door and stood there for about 30 seconds. And before he engaged with her, she rolled down the window and threw out this plum-sized piece of plastic that emitted this high-pitched noise and then slowly pulled back into traffic. Uh, Her family explained to me that she thought these noisemakers that she carried with her, including an air horn, would again protect her from people who might harm her. That was the first of three stops that happened within just blocks of one another and within minutes of one another. After she pulled slowly back into traffic, the officer pulled in behind her, this time with his lights on and siren on, and she pulled over immediately again. This time, she called 911. 911, what's the address of the And... Told the dispatcher she felt like she was being harassed and she was confused about why she was being pulled over. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? wrong? The officer this time spoke to her, shouted, you know, a command to put her hands outside the window. She did not do that. She kept asking what she did wrong and she kept yelling, What did I do wrong? Then she pulls away a second time, and a block later she pulls over again in compliance with what the officer asked her to do.
3: Hi, you're being attacked by uh, Springfield police officer. Okay, what's
2: your name? What's Stacey your name? Kenny? What's your name?
3: Stacy Kenny. So you guys pointing a gun at me right now?
2: Okay, Stacy, stay on the phone with me, okay?
3: Okay, Okay, so
2: you need to. Stacy, I need you to listen to what the officers are telling you to do, okay?
1: And this time there is no engagement. The officer doesn't say a word. He goes straight up to her driver's side window, smashes it, Hmm. begins to punch her, and try to pull her out by her hair. Oh, my gosh. Now she's buckled in, locked in, with her seatbelt on. And another officer arrives, and he, the officer that smashed her window... And started punching her and trying to pull her out by the hair, directs that officer to break out the passenger side window, which he ultimately does, and then he climbs into the car and starts beating Stacy some more. And ultimately, Stacy tries to flee the scene in, in her car. But the officer that smashed the passenger side door, he's still in the car. And as she's driving away, the officer shoots her in the head. Fired.
3: Fired. We are all OK. That guy down.
2: Fire
0: and when police were asked about this later, what did they say was their rationale at this moment? Like, why did they seem to think that it was justified to use this level of force for someone who was, it sounds like, just behaving erratically?
1: So the officers who were involved in this incident I was able to get their depositions and read what the rationale was. And they said that because she was not complying with orders repeatedly, that they believed that they needed to take more aggressive action in order to bring her in. And in their minds, she was resisting them instead of complying. And so they got more and more aggressive. We reached out to the two officers involved in the violent encounter with Stacy for comment. Their names are Officer Craig Atkins and Sergeant Rick A. Lewis, who was the shooter. Their attorneys declined comment.
4: There are people who uh, fail to comply with directions from law enforcement. And sometimes during the course of those events, they uh, change their mind and actually listen to what the directions are and everything ends Uh, peacefully.
0: That audio is from a press briefing on the case given by the district attorney and the police chief of Eugene, Oregon.
4: And then there are the circumstances where the person just suffers from uh, paranoia and uh, a mental illness that affected his ability to um, perceive the circumstances.
3: Obviously, he does not want to or as no police officer wants to use deadly force. But under the circumstances, and again, in those microseconds, he had to make that and, uh, that decision to do that.
1: Now, that's the opposite of what training tells you to do when you're dealing with somebody who has a mental illness. You're supposed to slow things down, establish a rapport, take advantage of situations like her being on a 911 call with a dispatcher so that you can communicate Uh, more effectively with the person, explain what's happening, do it in a way that will calm them down, even inquire about their family, because perhaps the family could have come to the scene and, you know, helped. But they didn't do those things. And in the depositions, they did not say that they felt they did anything wrong. They said that they followed their training, which was when people are not complying, the use of force becomes more progressive But I have to say that, you know, when I spoke to a lieutenant who's in charge of patrol officers, he said that they now realize that it wasn't handled properly, Mm -hmm. that there were plenty of signs that this was somebody in mental distress. And they're now training their officers to recognize those signs and to respond differently. But this only happened after the family filed a lawsuit and really fought hard to get answers.
0: So why have you gone back to report on this one incident from last year among the the many cases of people being shot by
1: police around the country? Well, what prompted us to do like a deeper review of what's happening with people who are mentally ill and end up being, you know, killed by police is, you know, when the video came out of Daniel Prude in Rochester, New York, and he was clearly in a state of mental distress. And there was not a calm uh, handling of him. They put a hood over his head. They pressed his naked body to the pavement until he stopped breathing. And, you know, this caused protests across the nation. So we decided, hey, let's go back into our fatal force police database and take a look at at least the data that we have as it pertains to the mentally ill. For
0: listeners who don't know, back in 2015, the Post started a thing called the Fatal Force Database. It's a log of every fatal shooting by an on-duty police officer in the United States. The Post has recorded more than 5,000 shootings since it started keeping track. The database notes the circumstances of each shooting and the demographics of any victims and whether a victim had a mental illness.
1: And what we learned is that it is much more likely for somebody to die if they're in a small to mid-sized metropolitan area. The rural areas and the larger metropolitan areas of one million or more, they're actually starting to do better. And what is your sense
0: of why there is this disparity that is starting to grow between the way that urban and larger police departments respond to mental health calls versus how that happens in smaller towns or more rural places?
1: In some of the larger metropolitan areas, they are getting that they need to change their training. And they have been more receptive to teaching their officers, these de-escalation skills and special ways in which to be able to evaluate if somebody's in a mental health crisis. They've also been a little better at doing refresher training. As many police experts told me, these skills can kind of erode over time and you can become less able to handle things well. And they just have stepped up to the plate a little faster than the smaller, medium-sized metropolitan areas.
0: And so then what does that tell us about what steps are necessary to help make situations like what happened to Stacey Kenny less likely?
1: The biggest thing that helps is really good training. However, it doesn't always work. In the case of Stacey, the person who shot and killed her was in charge of their crisis intervention training, which is Mm -hmm. the training that you do to help people be better equipped at handling um, encounters with the mentally ill. So, you know, there's a couple of things. One, there's good training, there's keeping up the training, but then there's also this need to hold officers accountable. If you train them, but they know that they're never going to be called on their aggressive behavior that they use on the mentally ill, things aren't going to change. The thing that really struck me in the depositions that both officers that were, you know, deeply involved in the encounter with Stacy was that they both said that nobody ever had a deep conversation with them in the department about how they handled that encounter with Stacy. Hmm. That is shocking to me that there was no conversation about how it could have been handled differently. And were there any repercussions for these officers? They were not disciplined. And they did not face criminal charges. So, no, nothing happened to the officers. And the way in which they handled it wasn't even acknowledged as being less than adequate, to say the least, until the lawsuit was filed. These parents had to fight for the information that they got.
3: We filed a wrongful death lawsuit partly to find out what happened and uh, that's when we got the depositions from the police officers involved and so this was months later that we actually found out what happened the night that patrick died
1: the first time that the police department came over to tell them about stacy's death they just said that that she died in her car they weren't even they didn't even tell her up front that she died as a result of an officer shooting and killing her.
3: And it took a little while before they said, and it was an officer involved shooting. Well, that's like code speak. And uh, eventually it, I, I came to the realization that, that the police officer had shot Patrick. And I, I was confused. And I was like, holy cow, what, what happened? Where was Patrick when they shot him? And they said he was in his car. And, and I said, he was in his car when they shot him sitting in the driver's seat. And they said, yes. And I was at that point, I, I realized that, okay, something is, something is really up. And I started asking more probing questions. And then the, the two police officers uh, basically clammed up at that point, they, they would not tell us any more information about it.
0: So then what was the result of the lawsuit that Stacy's parents filed against this t- police department did, did they did they
1: win Yes as a result they got this 4.55 million dollar settlement the biggest settlement for a civil lawsuit against a police department in the history of Oregon and the department has agreed to change uh, how they review these kinds of cases they've agreed to reforming how They train officers and they've agreed to pay for part of a deeper investigation into what went wrong and why Stacey died. And has that prompted
0: kind of larger soul searching within this police department over how
1: they could or should be doing things differently? Well, at least in the higher ranks, it has. You know, I interviewed a lieutenant there who's in charge of the patrol officers, and he said that, in retrospect they need to not be smashing out people's windows that they need to slow down and try to ask themselves what can we do to assess what's really going on here so that we can better respond and he also said that they're doing you know training that teaches them to look at the very things that Stacy did that should have alerted them to the fact that this was somebody in distress calling 911 and asking for help, the noisemakers. She also had duct tape over her rearview mirrors. We met with
2: um, a police sergeant, and um, he called the crisis intervention team here in Eugene, Springfield.
1: They went to the police department about a year before Stacy died and told them that Stacy was schizophrenic and was not on her medication,
2: and we gave the sergeant our phone number and told him to please call us if there was any issue, and we would come right away. and And um, my impression on leaving was that there would be some notification given to the the police that you know, that this individual had been identified and that the parents, you know, were on it and that he wasn't dangerous and that we had no guns in the house and, you know, we'd never had firearms or anything like that. So I just thought that they would know that. Um, that I, and I didn't know how that would happen, but, but that was my impression.
0: But it feels like the challenge with rethinking a lot of the processes and protocols that police departments have in place for these kinds of incidents, that that what makes that so much harder is that these new ideas or new protocols about trying to interact differently with people who are in the middle of a mental health crisis, that that kind of comes into a fundamental conflict with some of the basic tenets of being a police officer. That when you're a cop, you tell people things and they're supposed to respond to you and they're supposed to do what you say. And if they don't do what you say, then that means that you need to step things up a notch um, or take them in or arrest them or prevent them from moving. And that whatever kind of changes there are in thinking now, that it feels like There needs to be a larger rethinking of, like, essentially what it means to be a police officer.
1: No, that's absolutely right. Most people who go into law enforcement, they're trained to move in and control a situation so it doesn't get out of hand, so that people are protected from whoever is acting erratically. And so you are asking officers to fundamentally change how they do policing and you don't want them to stop having those skills where they can move in and aggressively take action. For instance, one of the things that our database showed was that half the time they have a gun. Another 20-some percentage of them have a knife. And so those are theoretically situations where
0: they are trying to prevent a person from hurting themselves or hurting the people around them.
1: Right, exactly. So it isn't as if, Each one of these cases are easy or simple for an officer to respond to. Many times the person is having a mental health crisis and they are also potentially dangerous. So not all these cases are simple. This is really about those cases where there's opportunity for growth and opportunity to resolve them differently. And there's still plenty of those out there. And the hope is that those those situations can be handled differently by police. There's also a big move right now with police not handling these situations. The LAPD is starting a program that will have mental health experts respond to situations, not officers, mm. when it's clear the person isn't armed and they aren't dangerous.
0: And what do Stacy's parents say about what they believe should have happened in this situation and, and how they would want to see things change going forward?
2: That's what part of our our settlement demands were in terms of the de-escalation techniques, because part of de-escalation is what kinds of things can you do to give yourself more time to more thoroughly understand the situation and to get more creative about how you can come to a conclusion without hurting somebody rather than just going to the bluntest instrument that you have, which is to shoot
1: them. And that's because it's legal. The parents hope is that in these situations where somebody's clearly in a mental health crisis, that the police will use the training that is out there and, you know, negotiate and calm things down with the individual who's in crisis. Again,
2: just because it's legal doesn't mean that it was necessary and certainly doesn't mean it was the right thing to do. So so that's where we need to get to, where the the expectation is that shooting really is a last resort and 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 not done because it's it's expedient um sure it resolves the situation immediately but at what cost you know what what have you done to that well you've taken that individual's life which is incredibly profound and you've damaged the family forever ever and ever and ever and ever ever. you know there's nothing that can replace that life so is that worth the expediency of resolving whatever it was that needed to be resolved in that instant? And I don't, I don't think that's that's
1: correct. Their hope is that if something does go wrong, that certainly somebody in the department will review how an encounter with somebody who's mentally ill was mishandled, and coach that officer to handle it differently the next time. The fact that that did not ever happen is something that they really hope that this lawsuit will, will change, that other departments across the nation will take notice and do something proactive.
2: Speaking as the mother of the person that was lost, is it's a sign of respect that you took the time to thoroughly analyze the situation that happened and try to figure out where you could have done things better. Because clearly something went wrong if there was a life lost.
1: And then the next time that officer goes out, they're better equipped to, to handle the next person who has a mental illness or who's behaving erratically.
0: Kimberly Kindy is an investigative reporter at The Post. This year, thousands of people across the country have had to say goodbye to their loved ones over video call. The Post has been asking readers about their experience with grieving during the pandemic. And today, we bring you a story like that from Nancy Shenard, who lives in Maryland. Now, I want to talk to you, little girl. Okay.
1: Tell me what you did yesterday. Tell me.
3: Daddy. What?
4: I played with Gary. You played with Gary? Yeah. What did you play? My dad's name was Norman J. Gensling. He was born on July 4th, 1935.
3: I know. Because, you know, each Thanksgiving, we give thanks for all the good food and good things we had during the whole year.
4: I know. He grew up in Brooklyn and Queens in New York. He was a private pilot. He was an accountant. He had a lot of hobbies. He loved biking, he loved jazz. You have
3: some very good food, too. I know. Who's a good cook? Mommy. Who's a social cook? Daddy. Yeah.
4: He had a lot of health problems, but he overcame them all, except for COVID.
3: Okay, let's turn this off now. Why? So
4: that we can listen to it. Okay. My dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's about five years ago. We moved him into an assisted living facility. And it was heartbreaking. I saw my dad in February. I was able to take him out to dinner, and he seemed to really enjoy it. I don't think when I took my dad out, I had any clue that would be his last time in a restaurant. I planned to come back in a few weeks, and that was when the lockdown started. By the third week in March, we started getting emails from the facility that they had two positive cases... At that point, they stopped allowing visitors into the facility and they offered to have staff connect us through FaceTime or through calls, but we were not really successful in doing that. The staff was overwhelmed and my dad was not able because of the Alzheimer's to make phone calls or even answer his own phone. The day I got the email that said we've had two residents test positive with COVID, I just knew in my heart that it wasn't going to take long. My dad's wife called me to tell me that my dad had been taken to the hospital. It took a while for them to get his test results back. He didn't have any symptoms except that he had stopped eating and eventually the test result did come back positive. I thought he was gonna die. It was very difficult to get a handle on how he was doing. Because the hospitals were so overburdened in April in New Jersey, we could not talk to doctors. We could barely talk to nurses. He was alone. Nobody, he had no visitors for four weeks or more. The term hospice was used, but then it wasn't used, and then we weren't sure. And then they said he was turning a corner and getting better. At the end, they definitely made a formal Decision to call it hospice care, which just meant that they gave him more palliative drugs. And because of that, they allowed one visitor to come in in full protective gear. My brother drove four hours to New Jersey, put on the full protective gear, and was able to say goodbye to my father, FaceTime each of his children and his wife, so we could all say goodbye, even though my dad didn't seem very conscious. And then my brother left, and my dad passed away the next day. The Zoom funeral was so much worse than the death. It was just really disjointed in time and place. We went from wearing sweats in the bedroom to putting on nice clothes on top and sitting in my living room and and going to a funeral. There was nobody at the graveside. The rabbi had to bring her own shovel because she wasn't allowed to touch anything or use anything from the cemetery. She showed the hearse with my dad's body in it, and I didn't expect that, and I think that was the moment it became real. It, It just wasn't real until then, and that is when the tears started. All of the things that happen in a real-life funeral and you're all together, there's moments of great solemnity and there's moments of great grief, but there's always a small moment of joy or a moment where the sun comes out from behind the clouds or a moment where somebody trips and their shoe comes off and you can kind of laugh and remember why you love each other and you get to communally go through that with people. We just didn't get any of that and then it ended and we shut the computers and I knew that my dad's wife was home alone in her apartment. Now I feel like the grief process has completely been delayed. As of today, I have not gone to the cemetery. I have not seen my dad's widow. I keep thinking when things go back to normal, I'll miss him more. I used to call my dad on my way home from work. Every day at 5.15 in the car, I would call my dad. I don't miss that because I don't go to work anymore. (laughs) I really feel like if I were to go back to work, I would have a huge moment of grief on my first drive home because that was the time that I had with my dad.
0: That story was from Nancy Shenard. It was produced by Ted Muldoon and Colin Pope. A version of the story has been made into a beautiful and heartbreaking animation. To watch it, find a link at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Dio and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Alina Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith, and Renny Sprenowski is our associate producer. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.